going on, everybody? Welcome to this week's edition of the Dolphins in Depth podcast. Uh, I'm Daniel Oyafusi, and I can't lie, this week's episode might be a bit of group therapy for Dolphins fans after the Dolphins dropped their home opener in embarrassing fashion, getting blown out by the Buffalo Bills, 35-0 at Hard Rock Stadium. We're going to look at all angles of that, just like I said, embarrassing loss and kind of take a, a macro look at what that means for this rebuild, the third year of this rebuild under the Brian Flores-Chris Greer pairing. And I'm so lucky to have another great guest this week in the Palm Beach Post is uh, Joe Shad. So first, I want to say thank you, Joe, and welcome to the show. Daniel, am I, am I in the wrong place? I feel like I'm on the wrong podcast. <laughs> nah, you're in the right place, man. You sure, you sure, you sure I'm welcome here? Is this, is this cool? Nah, most definitely, most definitely. All right. Well, I'm glad to be here. This is certainly a first. I don't think anybody from the Palm Beach Post has ever appeared on the Miami Herald podcast or vice versa. So it is a uh, an honor and a pleasure. We are breaking new ground. Now, this is history, most definitely. And I think we're going to have a really great show. Um, we have so much to talk about. And I think we, we should kind of start with uh, the elephant in the room um, in that 35 to 0 lost to the Buffalo Bills, Tua Tungvaloa exits after the second drive after taking a, a big hit from A.J. Epineza, um, sustaining a rib injury. He didn't come back yet to be carted to the locker room. Uh, his backup, Jacoby Brissett, came in the game, and he really didn't fare that much better behind that offensive line. He was sacked four times. Tua was sacked two, t- two times as well. There was a bunch of pressure, and in the, data, the days to follow, we spoke to – Dolphins coach Brian Flores, if he said there might be personnel changes, and it looks like you know they're not gonna, they're not, they're not happy with the way this offensive line is performing, and they're gonna look for some changes. Um, in my opinion, I think that this is kind of the worst case scenario for the Dolphins right now in terms of just the way that they've built this offensive line, because you have some people who say that they haven't really invested enough in the offensive line. And I think that they've actually invested a ton in terms of the draft capital. When you look from left to right, there are a lot of young recent draft picks. Austin Jackson is a 18th overall pick in the 2020 draft. I believe Solomon Kinley is a fourth-round pick. Michael Dieter is a third-round pick. Robert Hunt, a second-round pick. And even Liam Eikenberg is a second-round pick. And it just seems like compared to last year and through two games, you're just not seeing – much improvement. They've moved guys around, position changes. They brought in different offensive line coaches, and nothing is working right now. And they're not content with that. So it seems like we're we're headed down for a shakeup. I mean, what do you make of the offensive line at this point uh, of the of the season and kind of this rebuild? Yeah, Daniel, you weren't on the beat when the Dolphins traded Laramie Tunsil to Houston for multiple first round picks and. Dolphins fans celebrated when Houston struggled and that pick became a very high pick. Uh, but, you know, are, do the Dolphins have an offensive lineman on their roster who's anywhere comparable to Laramie Tunsil? The answer is no, and Tunsil might very well be on his way to a Hall of Fame career. So it's one thing to say, hey, we have this great idea, we have this great plan, we're going to tear it all down to the studs and draft a bunch of new guys. But if the new guys don't make a lot of improvement between year one and year two, which we have not seen yet, uh, and if they don't live up to their draft status, then, you know, who do you blame? Where do you point the finger? Is it the coach? 
Is it the player? Is it the quarterback? Is it the scheme? Like, what is going on? And right now, everything is wrong. Everybody is wrong. And it looked really bad in week two. No, most definitely. And, you know, there's potential for maybe Liam Eikenberg shifting to left guard and Solomon Kinley moving out of the starting lineup. Brian Flores straight up said that Austin Jackson needs to play better. Um, He struggled particularly. Jesse Davis gave up that hit to Tua that knocked him out of the game. I mean, are there any quick fixes or to this offensive line? I mean, I've heard Mitchell Schwartz's name being thrown out. Uh, Maybe David DeCastro, who was released from the Steelers. I mean, in my opinion, I don't think that there really is a quick fix. I think that there's issues across the line from pre-snap recognition, communication, guys just getting beat. And, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for the past couple weeks, I've consistently said that my top concern about this team is the offensive line. And through two games, we're seeing a lot of really concerning things with this offensive line. I'm not sure how much better they're going to be able to get over the course of 15 weeks, even though there are, that is a lot of time for them to improve. I just, I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to get it together enough to kind of, get this offense going because I, I thought that the RPO offense kind of kind of hid the deficiency of the, of the offensive line, but the Bills were not phased by that. They brought a, guy, a lot of guys up to the offensive line. They blitzed. They kind of befuddled the offensive line and Tua and Jacoby Brissett, and it was like they had no answers for anything. Yeah, it's not good. And, uh, you know, the previous regime – uh, the Mike Tannenbaum era, they would go out and probably sign a 30-plus-year-old street free agent to come in and try to be a Band-Aid. This regime isn't going to do that. And even though you might you know, disagree with some of their decisions, I think that is the right decision because the Dolphins are trying to win games. They're trying to win 10, 11, 12 games and make the playoffs, which is important because Brian Flores has not made the playoffs in his first three years as Dolphins head coach. But even more important than that is finding out whether Austin Jackson is a bust, finding out whether or not Robert Hunt is, in fact, a Pro Bowl caliber right guard, or if the team actually does need to move him to right tackle, finding out whether or not Solomon Kinley should be third team on the Dolphins' depth chart, which he was at one point this offseason, or a starter, and he certainly did not play very well in in the last game. And finding out whether Liam Eikenberg is Tua Tungavailoa's blindside right tackle, which is what he was drafted to be, or if for some reason he can't beat out Jesse Davis, who's a very nice guy, who should be the Dolphins' sixth offensive lineman. That's the role that would best suit the, a successful Dolphins team. So, And here's the thing, Daniel. You know, Before you even arrived on the beat, there was some cross-training with the Dolphins' offensive line. Liam Eikenberg played left tackle at Notre Dame. He started out at right tackle here with the Dolphins and then was shifted to left guard. Didn't look very good at left guard. Now the Dolphins might be poised to play him at left guard. So, you know, how much shifting do you want to do? There's multitude of combinations that you could try. But the Dolphins' biggest problem last week, Daniel, and you saw it, it wasn't physical. It's not that these guys aren't tall enough. It's not that their arms aren't long enough. It's not that they don't weigh enough. It's that they made a lot of mental errors, you know, including the center, Michael Dieter, who has transitioned well to the center position. He and Tua Tungvaloa 
did not correctly identify the blitzes and did not make sure that before the ball was snapped, all the potential rushers were accounted for. So, you know, the offensive line coach, Lem Jean-Pierre, he says today, hey, we're not panicking. I know you were out there at Dolphins camp in Miami Gardens. And the biggest reason is, you know, a lot of those pressures and sacks were not actually on the offensive line. Now, some of them were. Jesse Davis was beaten cold, clean. Austin Jackson several times was beaten cold, clean. So was Solomon Kinley. But I think that in watching the tape, and you can check out the Tape Don't Lie segment on the website, on our website now, the Palm Beach Post website, um, that they were on their heels, Daniel. And, you know, it's like anything in life, you know, whether you're an offensive lineman or a singer or a construction worker, you know, when you get thrown off your game, Uh, Brian Flores used the word snowball, and that's kind of what happened to the offensive line. Things snowballed. You know, I don't think that those guys are quite as bad as they looked on Sunday. That said, they obviously need to get, uh, as Robert Hunt might say, their expletive in order fast. No, I agree, and I don't think that we'll see a 35-0 game for the rest of the season. I'm not... I don't think we'll see the offensive line play that bad or that poorly throughout the rest of the season. But like I said, I still do have some concerns about how much they can improve. And yeah, yeah. but Daniel, would you put Liam Eikenberg at left tackle? Would you? You're the head coach. Liam Eikenberg didn't play left tackle at all in camp. Okay, like a few snaps. And I know we started there in the first game. But I'm asking you, you're, Daniel, you're Brian Flores. After two games, do you say, you know what, Austin Jackson? You stunk so bad, you're out. Yes or no? For all the talk that Brian Flores says of playing the best guys, I might be inclined to just play Eichenberg left tackle. I mean, this is this was Jackson's first game. He obviously he didn't play in the season opener because he had COVID and didn't practice. But I might be inclined too, just because he struggled that much. And obviously he had his struggle that wasn't on the beat. But from everything I've read and all the metrics and whatnot, he did have his share of struggles as a rookie. But I think that as a first round pick, he's just naturally afforded the grace of that, the luxury of that time to see if he can improve. But Jean Pierre just straight up said today when asked if. Austin Jackson doesn't improve when he moved to left guard. He said if he doesn't improve, he's probably not going to be on the field because they can't have they can't afford to have guys who are just not improving. That was a good answer. Yeah, I like that answer. And uh, this is a no excuses Monday and Tuesday for the Dolphins, and and I like that. You know, I think it's really important after the way they got their butts whipped. I, I, I agree with the decision if in fact the Dolphins do this to give Austin Jackson another chance. If he is disastrous on Sunday at Las Vegas, I pull him and I make him earn his way back into the lineup. I make him practice at right tackle, compete at right tackle, practice left guard, compete at left guard. But I do think that the Dolphins need to find out if this very young player who, you know, had like a bone marrow thing in college where he he donated, you know, some bone marrow to a sibling and now he's got the COVID. He's just never looked – he's never looked strong and, and since he's arrived in the NFL. And, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, you have quick feet and you're agile and you're nimble and you have long arms. and But you need to be strong. And he has not appeared strong enough 
and maybe he'll be better after another week of recovering from COVID. You know, Daniel, we, we just dismiss COVID at this point. Like, oh, everyone's going to yeah. get it. You know, it's no big deal. Well, you know, maybe it kind of is. You know, it's like it is COVID. Yeah, that's true. You never, I really didn't even consider that until you brought it up. And we saw last year with Cam Newton um, being sidelined because of that. And he said he just wasn't right for the first couple of weeks. I really didn't didn't consider that. And we did ask Austin Jackson about that after the his first game or after his, I believe it was his second yeah. game. Um, and well, he, he well pretty much when he came back from being sidelined, and he said, you know, he had to kind of get his win back and his lungs and whatnot. Um, he didn't delve too much into his current situation, but we've we've seen and heard of athlete, professional athletes who are in tip top shape, and they get COVID and they come back and they still have to use an inhaler frequently, and um, it's just it's a struggle for them at times. You know, I remember Jason Tatum with the Boston Celtics talking about how he was using an inhaler after he got COVID um, just to get through games, and he said he had never had that. He never had asthma. He never had a breathing issue where he needed to use an inhaler. He was still using it weeks and weeks after he came back. So that's a possibility. You never know. Um, but like I said, I mean, he, he wasn't playing that well to begin with. And whether COVID is affecting him or not affecting him afterward, you know, the team still needs the, you know, the time is kind of running, running out, you know, to see whether he can be a viable left tackle in the NFL. You know, Noah Benogany was a first-round draft choice last year. First round. First round. And he's like the sixth or seventh corner. They have buried him. Okay? And so this is a franchise that is willing to cut their losses quickly. I mean, they dumped Kyle Van Noy after a year. You know, they, they cut Benardrick McKinney after they had traded for him and forced him to take a pay cut. I wonder if there's some people in that building, that beautiful, new, shiny facility. We love it. They have a nice coffee machine. Do you use the coffee machine outside the media room, Daniel? I'm not a coffee guy, but it is nice. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I I have so much cold brew. I must have had nine cups of coffee already this morning and this afternoon. So, uh, Igben Agony, you know, they buried him quickly. So why all the patients with Austin Jackson? Well, they probably feel they don't have anyone close too worthy of playing. Greg Little has been scratched. Yeah. And they consider Eichenberg to be their right tackle. They could always play Robert Hunt at right tackle if necessary. I, I think they're really desperate at left tackle right now, just desperate. Yeah, they really don't have an answer. And I thought that kind of the biggest – what really told me the state of the offensive line was a month or a couple of weeks before the regular season – the massive shuffling that they did in terms of acquiring Greg Mance and acquiring Greg Little. And then you see a guy like Matt Skura doesn't even make the 53-man roster. I mean, that just kind of told you everything that you needed to know about this this unit. And really, really harping on not only Austin Jackson, but, but Noah and taking a step back. I know that after that really deflating loss, there was a lot of a lot of fan reaction and really placing blame at Chris Greer, the feet of Chris Greer and Brian Flores for the construction of this team. Now, me being kind of still a newbie to the beat and not necessarily knowing every single detail of the Dolphins' 20-year history, but knowing a bit of some of the struggles, I thought that there was a bit of overreaction to that 35-0 to loss. But kind of in the days to follow, I kind of did – take a step back and kind of understand where people were coming from. Now, 
I wanted to ask you, when you look at this loss, is this kind of an indictment on the rebuild process that we've seen since 2019? It is alarming. It is alarming in terms of the many of the players that the Dolphins have added over the last three drafts, and most notably the 2020 draft, have, have not become as good as the Dolphins had hoped as quickly as they would have hoped. That said, I will tell you, Daniel, that in each of Brian Flores' first two seasons, and this is one of the cliche things that the coaching staff always says, but it's true. Just because it's boring and cliche doesn't mean it's not true. Those teams have improved over the course of the year. Now, I believe that the Dolphins have a good coaching staff, and I think that Brian Flores is a good coach. There are reasons to be concerned about the inexperienced first-year Dolphins offensive line coach, Lam Jean-Pierre, who you mentioned earlier, a very nice guy, has experience as a player and as an assistant offensive line coach. But Brian Flores has been through four offensive line coaches now in three years, and we will see how it plays out. I certainly hope that Jean-Pierre has a very successful and long NFL career as an offensive line coach, but one might argue that it would have made more sense for a group of youngsters, all these second-year guys and first-year guys and third-year guys, to have an offensive line coach with 10, 15, 20 years of experience. I don't know if George Godsey or Eric Studesville had a recommendation. They obviously felt comfortable with Lem Jean-Pierre, but you know, we're going to see how that works out. We're going to see. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work out, but we're going to be monitoring it closely. No, that's fair. That's very a very fair point to make. And, you know, he's definitely going to be under the spotlight and the microscope in the, in the coming weeks, um, just given the struggles of the offensive line. You know, I'll say I don't think that it'd be fair to to make that, that type of move to maybe can him and try to replace him midseason. Um, I, I don't think that – I don't think it's just coaching. I think that it's maybe a philosophy, um, offensive philosophy. I think to an extent maybe cross-training these guys so much has maybe been to their detriment. You know, you might want versatility, but there's also something to be said for kind of be a ma- being a master of one thing. You know, that saying, you know, if you're ma- – if you could do everything, can't really do anything, or if you're a master of everything, you're a master of nothing. Yeah, um, but I want to push back on that for a minute. I've heard the argument about cross-training. Austin Jackson has played exclusively left tackle since his arrival. Yeah. So he has not cross-trained. So as Lem was saying earlier today, if he's not a left tackle, where does he go? You can't just put him at left guard. He hasn't practiced there. You can't just put him at right tackle. He hasn't practiced there. I mean, I guess you could. But, you know, just to push back a little bit, you know, um, you know, Kinley, okay, can play left guard and right guard. Jesse Davis can play right tackle, left tackle, and both guard positions. But, you know, Austin Jackson is a left tackle. Liam Eikenberg ideally is a right tackle, even though he, you know, that's one of the things to think about, man. Like, Lee, like Liam, Eich, Liam Eikenberg was a good left tackle. Mm-hmm. The offense projected that he would be a good right tackle. As did a lot of other teams. What if that projection was wrong? Austin Jackson was not a great left tackle, and he has not been a great left tackle. The Dolphins thought that he projected to be a great left tackle. What if that projection was wrong? You know, the, the Dolphins saw Robert Hunt play solid right tackle down the stretch last year and moved him to right guard. What if that decision was wrong? 
I mean, we're going to find out, but it's certainly possible that the Dolphins have made some bad choices here. And, you know, and I do understand that we need some more time to figure out. It's only been two games. Remember, we get 17 this year. So, you know, maybe we'll consider last week like a preseason game. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But like I said, uh, week two that was not not a good showing. Now, we're still going to get into a lot of what happened with the Bills um, we we got to talk about the elephant, another elephant in the room, which is Deshaun Watson. I know after uh, Tua got hurt in that game, those kind of rumblings just popped back up. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and get back into that with Joe Shad from the Palm Beach Post. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Dolphins in Debt podcast. I'm still joined by Joe Shad from the Palm Beach Post. Now, we've previously been talking about the Daniel, 35. am I still in the right place? You are. You're in the right place. All right. Trust yeah, me. There's apparently a good relationship with, between the uh, Miami Herald and Palm Beach Post. It kind of reminds me of how the Eagles and Dolphins used to always trade with each other. It was like any time they had a player to trade, they just called the other guy to <laughs> trade. You know, no, no, uh, you know the uh, the uh, rivalries, man. Back in the day, man, there was some nasty stuff in the in the media workroom. The Miami Herald versus the Sun Sentinel, the Sun Sentinel versus the Palm Beach Post. Have you experienced that as a young reporter, or have you just seen a bunch of guys getting along? No, it's good for the most part. You know, it's, when I was in Baltimore, it was a very friendly, cordial group, and you know, I'm glad that. I've come over here and it's been it's been the same exact way. You know, it was great to great to be out with you and have dinner in Boston before the New England game. So that was really awesome. Yeah, Daniel learned a lesson. Do not try to drive a rental car into the north end of Boston on a Saturday night, right, Daniel? I learned my lesson. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> now you know, man, because you know you get to go back to Boston every year. So now you know. Not exactly. Most definitely. Most definitely. But now we got to get back into the fallout of the 35-0 loss to the Bills, you know, obviously Tua leading early with that rib injury. I think that, while wow, that injury was not his fault at all, because, at all because Jesse Davis let a Buffalo defender just run right past him for an unblocked hit. While that wasn't Tua's fault, I think that that kind of ordeal kind of brought back questions about uh, some of the some of the issues that, that draft scouts and draft people had with Tua was whether he was going to be able to hold up for a 16-17 game schedule with a smaller frame, um, being shorter and whatnot. And obviously, after that loss, you hear talk about 
maybe this is why the Dolphins should look into a Deshaun Watson trade. Now, I've been – of all the things that – all the takes that I've had with the Dolphins, I've kind of been really, really, really fiery about this one because while I do understand that Deshaun Watson is a fantastic, exceptional player, um, there's obviously the lingering legal situation and the being unsure of whether he's going to play this year. But even – not even getting to that, there's a lot of – there's just, this is kind of – belief that the Dolphins should kind of throw everything to the Texans and take in Deshaun Watson. And there's this kind of belief that he's just going to mask all the deficiencies and all the issues with this roster, with this roster. And I think that if the first two weeks of the season has showed us anything, it's that this roster is still very far from being a championship level roster. Um, there's a championship level defense though. I don't even know if I can go that far after watching. You can win a Super Bowl with this defense. If you have a exceptional, exceptional quarterback, I think that you have a chance. But I, I personally have concerns with the front seven's ability to consistently, to excuse me, consistently stop the run. Without Raquan Davis, yeah. Yeah, but even with Raquan Davis in recent years, or They've had they've had struggles. They haven't been as good stopping the run, allowing about four okay. and a half yards in recent years. Okay. Um, you Jerome, know, so Baker, Jerome Baker is not great against the run. He's been yeah. trying to improve. He's been trying to improve against the run like his whole life. And I like yeah. Baker. He tells he'll tell you that. Exactly. I think he's a very good pass rusher. He's solid in in, yeah. in coverage, but. The front seven, you know, we talk about the versatility of the of the defensive line and guys can line up at nose and at end and whatnot. But for some reason, it hasn't relayed into consistently stopping the run. Um, so when we talk about some of the issues I might have with the defense, that's what I would point out. I love the secondary. I have no issues with that. I think that there's a lot of depth, guys that can do different things. But I would say that uh, rushing the passer without blitzing is one thing that pops out to me and stopping the run. But going back to Deshaun Watson, I'm just not of the the mindset that you just kind of give away all the draft picks that you've worked to accumulate, and then you give away some young cornerstones, because I don't think the Texans are going to just be finessed and take Deshaun Watson for the low, despite what everybody thinks. I don't think they're going to do that. Um, you know, I feel like when we look at trades and, you know, possible acquisitions and whatnot, we look, and I think fans a lot of times can look at things through the lens of Madden. So, oh, I'm just going to drop Deshaun Watson's 90 overall, 95, no, 90, 95 overall into the team, and boom, we're a Super Bowl team. Like, I'm just not of that belief. I think that people will say, oh, well, he played with a bad offensive line in Houston, and look where that got them. Well, look where that got them. They had some bad seasons, some decent seasons, and they got as far as the divisional round of the playoffs. Um, I think that it might be an overreaction to kind of throw away your your process to the side. I'm going to pause you right there. I'm going to tell you one thing. I saw a photograph of Deshaun Watson wearing a Dan Marino caricature T-shirt once, and I thought to myself – this is the next Marino for Miami if they can pull this off. You got to understand that since Marino retired, 
two decades ago, they've been looking for a quarterback who doesn't suck. <laughs> they've been looking for a quarterback who's elite, who has championship traits. Now, they were hoping that it was Tua, but to this moment, we have no evidence that he is that guy. So if the Dolphins don't acquire Deshaun Watson, it shouldn't have anything to do with whether or not the Texans demand or require two or three or four first-round picks. I mean, I don't think it would actually take four. I think three would get it done eventually. The decision has to be based on moral grounds. The organization has to decide based on what they've learned about what he has or has not done criminally or unethically. They need to make a decision about whether or not he fits into what they want. I mean, I get it. Like, after he throws four touchdowns in four straight games, the fans will embrace him in all likelihood. But I feel like we just gloss over, we, all of us, all of us, the folks on Monday Night Football who are broadcasting the games, the the media, you know, it's like, I think it's too easy to dismiss the pending legal situation. You know what I mean? How can any team trade for Deshaun Watson at this time? You can't. You can't. Do you disagree with me? I'm making the statement that under no circumstances can the Dolphins justify trading for a guy who's been accused by 22 or so women of illegal or at least highly unethical and moral conduct. To trade for him now is absurd. Do you do you agree or disagree with that? I completely agree with that. And I said I, I said that I wasn't going to go into that because I just thought it was kind of understood how yeah. how just weird and just how of a just a PR mess it would be to kind of take on that mess right now. I think that the prudent thing would be to just let the situation play out. That's what the Texans are doing. That's why they're literally paying him to not play for them despite having QB injuries. I think you just have to wait on that and let it play out. But I was just talking from a pure football standpoint. I'm just not of the belief that you give away pretty much everything you have, all the draft capital and maybe a couple of young cornerstones that you have and just believe, okay, now we're going to go back to the glory days like Dan Marino. Like I just, I'm just not that confident in the way this roster is built right now. And I would have significant concerns as I said before, given this offensive line, you know, I, I keep on saying if you bring in Deshaun Watson, you're essentially in a Houston Texans situation where you're not really surrounding him. No, it's with not the Houston Texans. They're better than the Texans. This roster is better than the Texans roster, just to to, to argue, you know, that point a little bit. And here, here's one thing I'll say in general. To have big-time success in the NFL, in my opinion, 40% is do you have the right head coach. Well, I think the Dolphins probably do. And 40% is do you have a championship caliber quarterback? And I think Deshaun Watson clearly is. So if you have Brian Flores plus Deshaun Watson, in my opinion, you are 80% of the way to a championship. 80% of the way. And you can figure out the rest. So if Deshaun Watson is not in prison, and if the league comes down with whatever their suspension will be, six games, eight games, uh, and the Dolphins believe that they can justify having him on their roster, then I do think that he would be an excellent acquisition. Well, when you put it that way, you're 80% – 
of the way to a championship. I guess I can't argue with that logic, <laughs> but but now we'll see what happens. I mean, this these rumors, these reports, I mean, they're not going to go anywhere anytime soon unless Tua just absolutely lights it up. And we don't even know if he's going to be able to light it up this week because he is what Forrest said day-to-day after sustaining that rib injury. Um, Flo, Flo said he's in a lot of pain still. And, you know, there's an NFL Network report indicating that it's going to come down to just whether he can manage the pain. Um, now, do you think Tua should play this week? And if not, do you think Jacoby Brissett can hold it down and get a big win on the road in Las Vegas? Yeah, I mean, I think West Palm Beach's Jacoby Brissett gives the Dolphins the best chance to win. And for 30 years, I've been hearing coaches say, I need to play the player who gives me the best chance to win this particular game. And, uh, you know, Brissett is kind of crazy that he was talking about how I'm not a backup, I'm a starter. Um, you know, it's weird because it's like, dude, you are the backup. But um, he is, in my opinion, the best or one of the best backup quarterbacks in the NFL. And there's no shame in that. And, yes, if he starts on Sunday, we will describe him as a starter for at least one week. Um, but there's no reason to trot Tua out there banged up. And, and my guess is the Dolphins will not. Yeah, I mean, I think Wednesday will definitely be really telling, um, one, for what Tua's status is on the injury report, whether he even speaks to us. I agree with you. It would be best to just kind of sit him for a week. I think that, honestly, sitting him and kind of test driving whatever adjustments you want to make on the offensive line might, might not be that bad. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to say, like, make Jacoby set the crash test dummy, but, I mean, you know, better him than Tua. Uh, and, and honestly, I thought that he really wasn't that bad. I don't think he was really bad at all against the the Bills. I thought he was kind of the the victim of the offensive line's issues. And when you look back at that game, in the first half at least, they had five drives that ended past midfield and four drives that ended inside the Buffalo 40, but they really just couldn't couldn't sustain drives, and it was kind of a snowball effect with Tua getting knocked out and some of the early, some of the early kind of missteps they had. I mean, Devontae Parker just flat out dropped a touchdown in the end zone. Albert Wilson dropped two passes, and Jakeem Grant fumbled a third down catch inside the ten yard line. I mean, I know when you just look at thirty five to zero, it looks terrible, and it is. But they were down fourteen to zero at halftime. I think that we'll see a lot better execution against the Raiders. I don't think it's going to be good enough to to win, but I think Jacoby Brissett can can definitely hold down the the offense for a bit. And one thing I want to say is, you know, I was here for the last two weeks of training camp, and I didn't want to like get off to the wrong foot with Dolphins Twitter, but I didn't think Jacoby Brissett looked that much worse or better than Tua. I mean, honestly, I thought that they were kind of on par in their performance over the last two weeks of training camp. So Brissett definitely has the experience, and like I said, I think he'll be able to to steer the offense for a week or two. You know, it's interesting, the Ryan Fitzpatrick thing, and you didn't get to experience the Fitzmagic and the beard and the gunslinger stuff. You know, the thing that sort of separated him from Tua was, you know, hey, he had all this moxie, and he had, you know, the holster, and he was going to ch- chuck it down the field and be a grown man and all that stuff. And Brissett is sort of more like Tua in that they are ball security conscious 
and they are, have been focused throughout their careers on the short passing game. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Brissett is not, you know, he threw that long pass to Devontae that should have been caught for a touchdown. Would have been 14-7, by the way. Might have been 14-7 if Albert Wilson catches that ball and runs it in. Might have been 14-7 if Jakeem Grant doesn't fumble. I'm not huge on the coulda, woulda, shoulda, but, you know, and also not discussed at all this week is Brian Flores' decision to go for it on fourth down four times. Last year, Brian Flores was not very aggressive in going for it on fourth down. Uh, do you think that they should have taken one of those first half field goals? Potentially. I think the fourth and two from the 16, I believe it was, the Malcolm Brown right. um, run that came up short. Maybe they take the points there. I'm not going to get into the deep analytics of it all because I don't personally know exactly the deep analytics of it all. But a lot of those metrics say that when you get to that down and distance um, of the field, I mean, you go for it. So I don't personally have an issue with it. Um, I think Four that – two Malcolm Brown behind that offensive line. Yeah. Not, like, it's not exactly, you know, uh, the, I don't know. I, I was trying to think of a Las Vegas comparison, but, you know. It's not exactly like reading, betting red or black on roulette, you know. I don't, I don't know that that's even 50-50. Uh, you think that's better? Is that better or worse than 50-50, Malcolm Brown, fourth and two? Well, I didn't Well, I didn't say the play call was great. And if you look, <laughs> and if you look back at the play, the execution wasn't that great because you had a defensive tackle that beat a double team and Shaheen who missed the block on an outside linebacker, and the whole thing was just a mess from the beginning. The play call – Probably wasn't best, but I don't have an issue with necessarily going for it. Who, who made that call, by the way? Who made that call? <laughs> we don't know. Nobody we all knows. think it, we all think it's George Godsey. I mean, Bill Belichick. I mean, he knows everything, so he kind of. Hey, you know what? Let's blame Lem Jean Pierre. He made the call. <laughs> Lem said, "Give it to Brown." No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, for our listeners, we we, we have no idea who's actually. Calling the plays, but you know, probably Dotsie. Although it was a run play, so Studesville very well might have suggested that particular call. He's the run game coordinator, essentially. But, you know, he didn't, he didn't reveal that today, did he, Studesville? No, I doubt it. Of course not. not. Who knows <laughs> or forever? Who knows or forever? We'll probably just be running around in a circle, chasing that and waiting for them to finally officially reveal it to us. Who knows? Do you like all the secrets, Daniel? Is it getting to you? You're okay with the secrets. Uh, keeps it interesting. I'll say that. <laughs> keeps it interesting, you know. <laughs> Poor Daniel. Every time he asks a question that I know has like a, a Malcolm Brown chance to succeed, <laughs> I, I, hate, I hate to I hate to knock Malcolm Brown. I mean, uh, I hope that he is better in short yardage situations moving forward. Jordan Howard was not very effective in short yardage situations last year, and he was supposed to be the Dolphins' power back. Daniel, the Dolphins haven't had a power back since. The Nigerian nightmare, Jay Ajayi. <laughs> do you remember Jay Ajayi? I do. I do remember him. He had some big games for the Dolphins. And my fantasy that was a long time ago. That was five years ago. The Dolphins have been looking for an inspiring power back since. And I assure you that every year Dolphin fans will ask why a running back hasn't been drafted yet. Nah, most definitely. Now, I got to ask you before we wrap, who are you taking in this game? And since it is in Vegas, I thought we might as well do a kind of Vegas spin on it and see if you're taking the, you know, if you're taking the points, are you taking 
the Raiders to win this game? What, what, what do you? I want I want your overall straight up pick and and kind of your betting uh, pick for this. I think that the line is Raiders minus four now. I believe I can check real quick. But what do you think? Yeah, that sounds correct. Um, you know, I really. I, I, is Derek Carr still playing? I guess that's the latest, right? He's, he's questionable. Yeah, he's questionable, but expected to play. Okay, I mean, if Nathan Peterman plays, I'll take Jacoby Brissett all day over that guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, look, I think that the Dolphins will bounce back strong and play well. I know the Raiders have played well in the first two games. Um, I have not dove into, like, Raiders tape or Raiders stats yet. So this is more of sort of a gut feeling thing. I was right week one, picked the Dolphins to beat the Patriots. Felt strong about that one. Uh, Picked the Dolphins to upset the Bills incorrectly in week two. Did not have a strong feeling about that one. And obviously I I shouldn't have. That was a terrible pick by me. Likewise, Uh, me too. uh, Um, Right now I would lean Raiders to win, Dolphins to cover. That is my current feeling. Okay, I like that. And the line is Raiders minus four. I, in my preseason prediction, picked the Raiders to win this game. Obviously, Tua, Tua's availability being up in the air does not help things. I wouldn't be surprised if this line kind of goes up. But I'm going to take the Raiders to win, as I originally did. And I'm going to say that the Dolphins don't cover. I think this might be kind of a seven-point win for Las Vegas. And, you know, if the Dolphins do lose this game – and, you know, don't really rebound in a competitive fashion. We're definitely going to have to – people are definitely going to be sounding the alarm again. But, hey, we're, we're going to see. We're going to see for sure. I'm going to be in Las Vegas on Friday, Daniel. Now, that is a rookie move by you, not going to Las Vegas on Friday. I'm just going to call you out and let you know that, you know, over at the Palm Beach Post, we go to Vegas on Friday. Just let you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll see you, so I'll see you at the roulette wheel on Saturday. Nah, most definitely save a seat for me, man. Now, that that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Dolphins in Depth podcast. I want to thank Joe Shack from the Palm Beach Post again so much. It was great, great talking back and forth with you with uh, all things Dolphins. And uh, I'll see you in Las Vegas, and I'll see you, the listeners, back next week for another episode. Take care. 